Christy Eby presents a seminar on human health and climate change, risks and responses in low and middle income countries, held on Monday the 6th of February 2017, in partnership with Sydney Environment Institute, Sydney School of Public Health, School of Business and the Interoperability in Extreme Events Research Group. I'm going to assume you've got a background on climate change, so I'm not going to do talk about that. If you've got questions, I'm happy to do it. But I wanted to start with an overall framing of what the health risks are of a changing climate. So you can see in the little circular bit in the middle, we've got rising temperatures, extreme weather, sea level, and higher CO2 concentrations. Those lead to changes in exposure that are important for human health and well-being. And then on the outside, you see a not complete list of all of the health risks of a changing climate. And as you read across those, you see that that's almost everything a Ministry of Health has to deal with. So it's a very long list of challenges. And there's a lot of work that's going on in low and middle income countries to try and address these risks, to understand what the challenges are, and to look at how they can improve public health protection. Important framing when we think about this is when we look to the future, we think about risk. The impact is about observations. So we're, we're worried about risk. And in the context of a changing climate or other the environmental changes that we're worried about, risk is composed of three components. There's the hazards that are created by a changing environment. The heat wave that's going on right now in Sydney. The human and natural systems that are exposed to those changes and the underlying vulnerability of those systems. There's a tendency in public health to combine exposure and vulnerability. And it's important for climate change that we keep those separate. The same strength typhoon, not the same typhoon, but the same strength typhoon has hit the Philippines and has hit Japan. And very different consequences. Different coastal hardening, different kinds of infrastructure, different social capital, lots of differences between places. And so understanding the difference between the systems that are exposed and then what their vulnerability are is what really helps us to move forward in public health to do a much better job in protecting health. And then vulnerability, particularly in our context, can be divided into sensitivity to those changes, which individuals are more sensitive to higher temperatures, which individuals are more sensitive to mold exposures, to allergen exposures, and the capacity of our health systems then to try and manage those changes. And then of course, for climate, we've got natural climate variability, anthropogenic climate change, and for risk and vulnerability, we've got a whole range of socioeconomic processes that over time will change exposure and will change vulnerability. As opposed to the other sectors that are working on climate change, health systems are a much better place. We've been working on managing the risks of climate-sensitive health outcomes since the beginning. I gave a lot of talks outside of health systems. I took primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention, because nobody outside of public health knows what that means, and said we've got reduced exposures, prevent onset of adverse outcomes, or response and treatment. So we've got a long list. This is just a very, very short list of the kinds of methods, tools, and guidance we have available. This example is from, I took it from the Library of Congress. In the mid-1800s, for those of you who remember history well for the U.S., most of the people in the U.S. don't, that uh, the major port in the U.S. was New Orleans. 
And then starting about mid-century, there was a series of outbreaks of yellow fever. Mortality from yellow fever is about <coughs> 30%, carried by a mosquito called Aedes aegypti, which also carries Zika, chikungunya, and dengue. And really the only way to deal with that is the ships were quarantined. And so ship owners then were not any different than ship owners today were not enthusiastic about sending things over oceans to have them sit in quarantine in a port. So this is from the port of New York City saying we can do it better. So that's the port in the back. It's lovely, it's clean. Public health is an angel. I think that's kind of cool. Her shield says cleanliness. This says at the gates. Cholera, yellow fever, and smallpox. And cholera and yellow fever are very much climate-sensitive health outcomes. And so this is how our major port shifted from New Orleans to New York, but it also is a reminder of we've got a long history in health systems of managing these kinds of challenges. The issue that we face is that none of our policies and programs were designed taking climate change into account. So they're not up to the challenge. And so working in low and middle income countries is making that transition. From you've got effective policies and programs, often maybe they could use some improvements, but climate change is gonna make it more difficult. And how can we help make a difference in population health? One of my absolute favorite slides, if you haven't seen this, it's from Doghouse Diaries. It's data-driven, and it says what each country leads the world in. So you lead in deadly animals and melanoma. <laughs> The U.S. leads in Nobel laureates of being killed by lawnmowers. <laughs> um, you can go around. Uh, it's great fun. You can, on the web, you can blow it up and you can see for each country. Um, one of my personal favorites is the Netherlands leads the world in being tall. Uh, I was in an elevator recently and two people were speaking a language sort of sounded like German. Um, and one said to me, you know, can you guess what language? And I said, it's Dutch. And he said, how did you know? And I went, oh, I don't know. It's just a guess. Right? <laughs> But it also makes a really important point, there's different capacities everywhere. And we have to take that into account. One of the challenges I see in trying to manage the health risks of climate change and all the other global environmental changes is public health is the same structure we did in the 1800s. And yet we know that there's real differences from place to place. And we have to take those differences into account if we're gonna be effective. And that means thinking about public health differently. What I often do in my class is I show a slide that was taken, it's a photograph from Mozambique, that several years ago there was massive flooding in Mozambique. A million people were affected, 15,000 15, people were rescued from trees by helicopter, a woman gave birth in a tree, and her daughter celebrated throughout Mozambique. And the year following that, I saw someone give a presentation about it. It was all about the meteorology of it and all kinds of dimensions. There was one slide in there on the health issues with that kind of massive flooding event. And I make the students guess of what was on that slide. And I tell them, I think they can guess everything on that slide except the second cause of morbidity and mortality. The first was the floodwaters themselves. And the students guess what you'd think that they'd guess. Food security, massive flooding throughout the country, food and waterborne diseases, vector-borne diseases, Mozambique really did quite a good job, but there was real problems. And they go through and they guess. The one thing that always fascinates me is it's in almost all the audiences in, certainly in the US and in North America, some student guesses something about snake bites. 
which I think says more about North America than it does about Africa. The second leading cause of morbidity and mortality was landmines. It was just after the Civil War ended. There was one million unexploded landmines. They washed out of highland areas. It was mostly children that found them. I know a lot about climate change. I know a lot about flooding. But I don't know your vulnerability. And therefore, I'm not the expert in what kinds of changes need to be made in your policies and programs. We have to have that partnership with the people who are being affected. <coughs> we do this in the context of developing climate resilient health systems. Just came out from WHO a year ago. We've got the basic building blocks of health systems, and they looked and how are we going to adjust all these basic building blocks so we can deeply incorporate a change in climate in an effective way to protect population health. So mostly I'm going to focus on a review that I did with uh, somebody in the WHO Geneva office taking a look at some of the projects that have been done on health adaptation in low and middle income countries. This is only a partial list. There's been a big increase in the number of projects since we did this review. But there was three main projects we looked at. There was a seven country project under the Global Environment Facility. There was the MDG Fund, did a project in a few countries. And then the German Aid Agency funded a project through WHO Euro in a number of the stands. So basically, and these slides have got too many words, but I didn't know how else to do this. We reviewed a lot of documents. Well, I reviewed a lot of documents. All the documents you can find from these kinds of projects, the preliminary documents, the midterm review, the final evaluation, to take a look at some of the factors that would be important in thinking about health adaptation. There was also qualitative data collection. Went out and did in-depth structural reviews with a series of key informants and some focus group discussions. So some of the key themes that came out are not surprising. You can pretty much guess that all of these are key themes for successful interventions in health systems. It's just really nice sometimes to document them and actually say, yes, we did look at the evidence, and it is true these are important. So the first is how important it is to embed health adaptation within a country's development goals, that this is not donor-driven this is actual what is important in the country. You have to make sure that you've got deep engagement. And so all of these projects made sure that there was strong connections between the Ministry of Health and particularly the meteorological services. It's surprising in how many countries people in the Ministry of Health have never talked to anybody in the Met Services and don't even know where to start that conversation, how to have that conversation. But you need to have it if you're going to have access to the weather data that you need to understand your exposure response relationships and understand what changes are likely to come. The second major point was much of the work that has been funded continues to be that case, is when people do projects, you focus on outcomes. You don't focus on the overall objective. And that's part of the way almost all funding is structured. And we just wanted to remind everybody, you need to look at the overall objective. In this case, climate has changed, is continuing to change, and will change for centuries into the future. 
how are we going to manage this change going forward? Our overall objective is to increase resilience. And so we have metrics along the way, but when you have a three or four year project, those are short term metrics. And making sure that those fit into a long term vision. Multi-sectoral approaches, we've got to work across sectors and make sure that we are understanding changes that are going on in other sectors and how they could affect the effectiveness of the work we do in health systems. Build the capacity and engage in stakeholders. Right? We've got to really work with those who are affected or who represent those who are affected. We've got to develop those deep engagements to make sure that we have those discussions and make sure that what changes we make to policies and programs are going to work and they're going to be taken up. There's not yet something else that's done that, gee, we tick this box, we made this change, but then you go back a year later and nothing's happened. We have to make sure that we reinforce enabling conditions across scales. So, you know, what are the enabling conditions? What kind of capacity building do we, we do need to train our health system workforce? How are we going to go about doing that? How are we going to embed that? in a broad overall process. What's happened in quite a few of these projects is they're primarily led through the World Health Organization, which has done a phenomenal job working on promoting health in a changing climate. But their focus is on training the healthcare workers or people in the ministry. It's not necessarily training people in universities. And in most low and middle income countries, there's a real back and forth between people in universities and people in the ministry. And so it's important to make sure that there's a broader engagement. And we have the universities teaching climate change, global environmental change is an issue. Because what happens when three people in the ministry are trained, chained, sorry, were trained, leave, then you've lost all your capacity. So you need to have ways to make sure you keep building on that. The way we approach adaptation is risk management, so we need to institutionalize risk management. It has to be somebody's job. It's not just a project that you do on the side and then it's done with. It's got to be somebody's job. It has to be there each and every day. Indicators is a big area. We've got a lot of need for different kinds of indicators. Uh, knowledge building, supplementation of expertise. <coughs> There's very few people who've worked on the health risks of a changing climate, and so a lot of projects, they talk about building the capacity in the country, which is certainly the aim, but in the beginning, you're going to have to supplement what expertise they already have. That it's, it's going to be a process in the beginning where there's going to be a lot of engagement from others to help with supplementing their expertise. Address mitigation and adaptation jointly whenever you can. Both are important. And an obvious statement, but one that had to be said of good project management is a good thing to have. And I'm going to give some examples of some of these. Most of this is based on some guidance documents that have come out of the World Health Organization, one on conducting vulnerability capacity and adaptation assessments, the other on uh, conducting the health component of a national adaptation plan. So when we looked at the projects, most of them focused on their initial country priorities. So what are the priorities in the country? It may not be the most serious risks of a change in climate, but they're country priorities, so it's a really good place to start. When you think of that first slide, you've got this very long list. Where countries get stuck is where do you start. It's an overwhelming list of possible impacts. 
And so starting with priorities you've already got is a really good place because you know there'll be <coughs> engagement on that. And that mostly says the same thing. So you want to make sure that you've got full participation from communities when you do the implementation. This is not somebody coming from the outside to make this happen, but you do have that partnership, this engagement. So this is an example from some villages in Kenya. The project there was focusing on malaria early warning systems. And this is an example of malaria case management. So I don't need to read this to you, but it was a really nice example of how we're trying to develop this malaria early warning system. They did work with the communities to make sure that they would uptake it and make sure that you could actually manage the cases. In many communities, it's difficult even today for people to diagnose and then decide how to treat a child who's got a very high fever. Bhutan is a vertical country. Goes from a few hundred meters to well up into the Himalayas. They started with very little knowledge of the health risks of a changing climate. The person involved in that is now an international expert who's doing training around Asia. They have just done a remarkable job. Their ministries are very closely spaced. I remember we were in a meeting and talking about what people needed to do, and the representatives from Bhutan said, yeah, we'll just walk down the street and talk with our colleagues over there. That's one of the advantages of having a smaller country. The ministry was not engaged in this issue. The person who worked on the project, the Global <coughs> Environment Facility Project, is now fully employed in the ministry working on climate change and health very close uh, relationships with the meteorological services, have worked on early warning systems for malaria and a number of other diseases. As this picture illustrates, with this vertical aspect to the country, they're watching diseases change their range. I was there a couple of years ago in April. I wish we could have videotaped who went out and talked with some of the rural areas that were involved in this project, some of the communities that were involved. In Bhutan, the healthcare is organized, so there's a voluntary, voluntary healthcare worker in each community. Mostly they're farmers, because it's still mostly agrarian society. And this volunteer healthcare worker gets training every year and does basic triage. It's a least developed country, so what the volunteer healthcare worker has access to is the kind of stuff we have in our medicine cabinet. But not everybody can afford it in the country, so if something happens, they talk to this voluntary healthcare worker who will decide if they need to go go on to other medical facilities and what, what needs to be done. And I asked what kinds of changes they'd seen in their lifetime. These are farmers. And this one farmer started talking about how when he was a kid, he always knew it was time for the fall festival because there was snow in the mountains. As an adult, there's no snow in the mountains during the fall festival. When he was a kid, he doesn't remember mosquitoes. He was a kid, there could have been mosquitoes, there might not have been mosquitoes, but mosquitoes were not a big fact of his life. And the April that I was there, everybody in the village was sleeping under bed nets, and the closest known case of malaria was 10 kilometers away. So he's gone in his lifetime from not knowing about a disease such as malaria to any day now he will be at risk for malaria. So they're working with their environmental information to develop early warning systems. And that's one issue I really hope people take away from this. There's a huge amount of environmental information out there that public health really needs to start capturing. There's so much that we can do with that. 
And in this case, that information is being used to protect villages in ways they couldn't do before. And they're continuing the process. This was just a couple months ago. There was a national program, a national training around climate change and health. They're working on their national adaptation plan, brought together experts from the Ministry of Health and from other ministries, and they're just part of the group talking about some of the actions that they're going to take and how to make sure that as there's other changes, changes in agriculture, changes in water availability, that the ministry's prepared to manage those shifts. Uzbekistan has got a range of challenges. It's a very dry country. And uh, they have a very strong MET services. And so this project was actually bringing health data into the MET services so that they could start analyzing exposure response relationships they're particularly worried about diarrheal diseases. They see a big increase in diarrhea during the summer when it's very hot and dry. When it gets hot and dry and you have lower access to water, people change how they use water. And diarrheal diseases go up. Trying to better understand that pattern so that you could forecast when you're likely to see a change. And again, then put in the protection measures that we know how to do. Jordan is another water-stressed country. It's one of the 10 most water-stressed countries in the world. Several years ago, they started using treated wastewater in agriculture because there really wasn't any other option. They then saw an increase in diarrheal disease around where they're using the treated wastewater. And so part of this project was taking a look at that. They did research under this project, and it wasn't the treated wastewater. It was how people were handling water and some other issues that led to the increase in diarrheal disease. Another part of the project was that and I've forgotten the number, there's 11, 15, 17 different departments and ministries who have something to do with water in Jordan. From water safety, food security, water access. And the project was trying to bring some coherence across all these departments and ministries. And a massive undertaking. And they're making progress on it, but it's not an easy shift when you've got all, the, you've got all these different mandates for different groups. I don't have a good slide from some of these projects, but many of the projects were working on early warning systems. Several of the projects worked on heat in particular, and so there's guidance from WMO and WHO on how low and middle income countries can start developing heat wave early warning systems. One of the countries in the Jeff project was China. They could have chosen just about anything. They focused on heat because they've got an aging population, they've got problems with heat waves. This is an action plan that's put together in India, not part of the project, but it's a really nice example that is being put into all the local languages and being sent around. It also is an interesting example of how we need to think more broadly of the risks, the vulnerabilities, and how to make interventions. I happened to be at the first meeting of developing this action plan we went and talked to a local hospital. Their neonatal ward is on the top floor of the hospital with a metal roof. They've since moved that, but they had problems with the, with the neonates because they're in such an amazingly hot environment. And so thinking about how you organize buildings, what spaces you use for what activities, it's not something that many of us have engaged in, but it's really important. Countries are all working on national adaptation plans. Under the Paris Agreement, all countries 
are working on nat national adaptation plans, at least those who have signed off on the Paris Agreement, which is most countries. Uh, so this just is one of many examples. There's a lot of work that's been done in Cambodia, looking at their risks of changing climate. Early work for this was funded by AusAIDS and led to this strategy that they've got for public health. You're not intended to read this, but this is just a reminder that it's complicated. This is, <laughs> this is in Thailand, and these are all the different aspects of the ministries that they need to connect with. And so laying out who you've got to reach out to, where they sit, who's got responsibility for what, it is an interesting challenge. You've got to understand organizational charts in ways we often had to you know, we just look at the, our own health sector, which is often really complicated in and of itself, and then you look at all the other ones, and, and how do you reach out, how do you, more than reach out, how do you make it somebody's job, again, to make sure that you're interacting with these people? Because the people that are trained, the people that are understand, will someday move on to something else. Somebody's gotta be responsible for making that happen each and every day, each and every year. And so embedding this within ministries and at multiple levels is really important. Using adaptation to facilitate mitigation, nice example from Kyrgyzstan, where they looked at five pilot hospitals, did some energy efficiency, and you can see they installed uh, solar photovoltaic for these hospitals. So both increase the ability of these hospitals to handle large changes in temperature, to handle heat waves, but also then promote renewable energy, that we in the health system need to lead the way on both mitigation and adaptation. I don't know the numbers for here, but in the United States, our health care is 17% of our GDP. And we talk about how important mitigation is, but we have yet to really take the leadership role in doing mitigation ourselves in our own sector. There was a lot of discussion, one of the issues we were addressing in this particular project was how do you scale up? And that's a really big question. That there's been a number of projects that have looked at health adaptation, but there mostly been one-off projects, and how do you start embed this in processes where you can start scaling up? And so these are some of the issues that we raised when thinking about scaling up. And um, they're very specific based on the particular projects that were involved. And I'm happy to talk about this a little bit further, but just a note that we need to think about the scaling up issues as we go forward. Challenges and barriers, there's lots of them. Um, political will and leadership was at the top of everybody's discussion of how we need that political will. Data access is a big issue in low and middle income countries. In many countries, the meteorological services uh, really are underfunded and one of the ways they've been working to increase the level of funding is they charge for their services, and they charge a lot. And so in many countries, you often can't get access to the weather data. It's too expensive. I'm doing a project in East Africa, our first meeting with the Met Services, they wanted $150,000 to have access to their weather data, which is way outside what is, what is even considered to be affordable. So we've got to work at lots of scales to make sure we have that access. A country in Asia, in one of the meetings we had, mentioned that they didn't have access to their air pollution data, that that was considered a not public data, and so they couldn't have access to that. 
we talked this morning, there's very few projections of what could happen in a changing climate. So we don't, we know a lot about these health risks, they're all current risks, how they're gonna change in the future, we need to think more about, we need to have these projections, but the funding level isn't there to support that. We don't have a consensus on implementation standards. What is gonna be considered effective? We've got these three or four year projects, everybody wants to say that's it, we've adapted to climate change, but all we've adapted to is the current climate, we've not adapted to the future climate, and how do we think about something that will change over time? This is not a usual way that health systems have thought about problems. We think that we're gonna control it and then we're done with it. In this case, we're never gonna be done with it, and how do we embed iterative risk management into what we do? There's almost no resources. We're kind when we said limited. There's almost no resources. In health systems, we always talk about the importance of monitoring evaluation. How much money goes to that is not always equal to how important we say this is as an activity. Even more important in a changing climate because we know the climate's gonna continue to change. Development's gonna change. What choices do we make in our city and our development pathways will make a big difference for how vulnerable populations will be in the future. How do we monitor that? We're not, we haven't come to a consensus on what those indicators should be. And then national evaluations of capacities, so really strengthen the ability of nations and subnational regions to be able to assess where they are in terms of their particular vulnerabilities and what they need to do to reduce those in the future. So this is a graphic that came out of some of the work that was done and you can see that Lots of changes are needed in lots of different dimensions. It's just a nice way to express the previous slide. We need more support in this area from research, from ministries of health, from national governments. And we concluded that overall, irrespective of these resource constraints, the challenges of climate change means that there are gonna be problems in low and middle income countries with climate sensitive health outcomes. And there's a lot they can do to start taking action now. And the more quickly they do that, the more effective they are, we can start increasing resilience, even as climate change is gonna make it more difficult to control climate-sensitive health outcomes and get us better, better prepared for a very different future. And with that, thank you.